Lord, let us not right now take this lightly in any way. Let us realize that you have set before us life and death and that this path of discipleship to you, though we do it from a place of grace, realizing that you have, you have condescended and you've come to take us up out of the miry clay and set our feet upon the rock, though we depend upon your grace, we also realize the responsibility and the call to obedience that comes out of the faith which you've gifted to us. And we don't ever want to take that lightly at all for it would simply be the evidence that we have not tasted and seen that you are good. But because we have tasted and seen that you are good, we want to live in obedience to you. And so we want to heed these words that we will see in the book of Deuteronomy and this call to choose life. And that life is in Christ, by which name we pray these things. Amen. All right, so we're starting our series in Deuteronomy and today is going to be just a bit of an overview sermon um, we've got that text Deuteronomy 30 but that'll we'll kind of briefly look at that in the end but this is really like an overview before we jump into to chapter one next week so to give a bit of a recap to get us up to this place um, to understand Deuteronomy the book of Deuteronomy is set in the context of God's people having spent 40 years in the wilderness on what should have been an 11 day journey. So they have um, had a tiresome journey. Um, many years before that, the people of Israel were formed as God appeared to this man named Abraham and said to him, you will be the father of a great nation. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars of the sky. I'm gonna do great things through you, Abraham. I will make my name great through you and slowly but surely these promises were fulfilled though it took a long time abraham did have a child and through that child there were more children and all of a sudden many centuries later the people of israel are in egypt and they are growing so numerous that even the egyptians this great power um, they were kind of the main power of that day is starting to realize that the Hebrew people are a threat because they're just multiplying so quickly. And so they thought, well, right, we need to get this under control. We need to oppress them and subject them to slavery now or else they'll become too big and too strong for us. So the people of Israel are in Egypt under slavery. And then this man named Moses comes along and God appears to this man named Moses at the burning bush and says that, I will deliver my people. You are going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to go to Pharaoh and announce that you are to free my people. And even if Pharaoh doesn't, I will make it happen. And I'm going to bring you into this land flowing with milk and honey. This beautiful land and this journey starts out great. These amazing things happen. God does this, um, these tremendous plagues and you see his miraculous signs. The people are let out and God parts the sea and the, allows the Israelites to go through and the Egyptian army is then um, just basically annihilated as the sea crashes back over them as they were coming to pursue the Israelites. There's bread falling down from heaven. There's all of these tremendous signs. But soon this wonderful journey 
to the promised land turns into wilderness wanderings. It's kind of like if you remember when you were younger and you were going on a road trip with your family and uh, there was a lot of excitement around it and so you um, head off and we used to go from Canberra to Adelaide or a few times we went from Canberra up to Queensland and it'll be a long journey and there'll be a lot of excitement initially and then uh, after a few hours because you're a little kid you start to get frustrated with how long it's taking and then I just the worst thing you can probably remember this if you're young enough before GPS the worst thing that you could see was your mum pull out that huge map that like takes up the whole windscreen and she's kind of looking and like pointing along and my dad's trying to drive and he's you know like hitting her hand and pointing saying we need to go up this way and you're in the back thinking this is terrible it's going to take ages are we ever going to get here and that is kind of like where the israelites are at right like they've been wandering around for a long time they've been on this journey that sounds great it's an 11 day journey and after 40 years, they're still not there. So this journey full of promise turns into a nightmare. The people of Israel are complaining and moaning. And despite seeing God's miraculous hand in so many ways, they continue to forget him and turn after other gods. And so God actually intentionally leads them for 40 years. So the first generation would actually die away. God said they will not enter the promised land. So you are going to stay in this wilderness until they have all perished. And the second generation will be those who will enter into the promised land. And so this is kind of the point at which we start off in the book of Deuteronomy. This point where Moses is now reminding the people, saying to the second generation, like you saw what happened to your fathers, how they perished. And now you're about to be settled. You're about to be settled into this land flowing with milk and honey. God has made a covenant with you. You're about to experience that in a beautiful way. So don't forget the Lord your God. Don't grow complacent. When you get into this land, don't forget about this God who brought you out of slavery, who made a covenant with you and who now sets out the requirements of that covenant. So this is what the book of Deuteronomy is really about. What it means for God's people to live in covenantal obedience to him. And most of you would know the term covenant is this idea of a commitment. It's like we get the word covenant from the covenant of marriage. It's, it's deeper than just a contract. It's a, it's a commitment between two parties to unite together. But there are terms to this covenant. So God, in his mercy, he covenants with his people saying, I commit to love you and to care for you and to provide for you. And now here's how I want you to live in light of that. So Deuteronomy is all about God's covenantal love toward his people and how his people are to live in light of that covenantal love and responsibility. And the constant reminder throughout Deuteronomy is that God has already saved them out of Egypt. So it's not that God comes to them in slavery and says, you live this way and then I will make a covenant with you. Then I will provide for you. The constant reminder, God is always revealing himself to the people saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, who led you into this promised land. And that is how they are to live in light of the fact that God has already done 
this incredible thing for them. And that is just the pattern of God's grace that we see again and again. God saves us, washes us clean, and then instructs us how we are to live. And so this is the pattern throughout Deuteronomy. And if we understand the historical context of Deuteronomy, the way the structure of the book is set out, we see this even more because Deuteronomy is set out basically like any other ancient Near Eastern treaty. And ancient Near Eastern is just the area of like modern day um, Palestine, Israel, Afghanistan, that kind of Middle East area. But 3000 years ago, there were a lot of other powers there and there would be these treaties. And in a really simplistic way, basically, a new nation would come in and, and, and say to the people after they just plunder them and conquer them, right, I'm now your new Lord, live in this way and everything will go well. If you do not follow this treaty, we'll kill you. And that's basically it. And Deuteronomy is actually set out in a similar way to these treaties, but the, the big difference is it displays and um, demonstrates this Lord actually acting on behalf of his people. That would never happen in, a other, in a, a, an ancient Near Eastern treaty. This new Lord would never act mercifully on behalf of his people. He would just conquer and then say, right, get on board or you'll die. I'm way too powerful for you. Whereas Deuteronomy shows how God's unmerited love is for his people. He actually acts on behalf of his people. And so this helps us understand his laws that they're not actually burdensome if we truly understand what God has done for his people. The only logical response to a God who has taken you out of oppression, who has freed you, washed you clean. The only logical response to this deeply unmerited love is loyal obedience. That's just the logical response. And so we have to see that God's love is actually empowering. And so this book of Deuteronomy is, is actually a sermon in its entirety, exhorting and instructing us how to live as God's people, according to his word, in light of his saving work. And for the people of Israel, their constant temptation, which will be our temptation, their constant temptation while on this journey was to forget the Lord's work to forget his saving work, to grow complacent in their walk and give themselves over to more enticing gods. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that all of these things happened. He describes Israel's history and he says, this all happened as an example for us, meaning you and I today, and those he was writing to. Israel's whole history happened as an example for us that we would not slip into the same problems, the same sin as they did. And now we, jumping to our context, we're a young community. We're a brand new community. We actually share a lot of similarities with those in the book of Deuteronomy. For most of us, I think all of us here today have been taken out of a city and hopefully your city isn't Egypt. I'm not saying that like Adelaide or, or Brisbane is, you know, like the um, slavery and oppression in Canberra is the promised land. That's not quite what I'm saying, but we have been brought out of a city. We've been brought on this journey and we are kind of in the process of being settled. 
And we will face the same temptations of forgetting God's saving work, of growing complacent. In Deuteronomy 8, which we'll get to in a number of weeks, God actually says to the people, hey, when you get into this land and you have houses and you have food provided for you, are you going to forget the Lord your God? What's going to happen? And it's kind of the same for us. Like when we get settled, when we all get settled into our jobs, into our life, we have new friends, are we going to forget the Lord our God? Are we going to grow complacent? And so that is the temptation for us to, to help shape our approach as we study Deuteronomy together. I want to give two warnings, two tips and one exhortation to finish off. So the two warnings I want to give at the start. The first is the alluring nature of cultural idols. Now, we kind of spoke about this a lot in, in our series in Revelation, this idea of like the seductiveness of culture. And in one sermon, I spoke about the three M's, media, materialism and money and how these things in our society aren't just innocent vices. They actually take away our devotion like they're there to seduce us and take us captive. And in Deuteronomy 7, just one example of the many, God is battling with this with his people. And so he actually tells his people in Deuteronomy 7 not to intermarry with these foreign women. And he says, because they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And so this is why God commanded the total destruction of peoples and their cities, because of the deceptive, alluring nature of the cultural idols. In these ancient cities, there were just a plethora of idols that were there to actually, literally, their whole purpose was just to allure you, to draw you in and give your devotion to them. And so God made sure not to have his people enticed into that in any way. And so when Deuteronomy 7, when, when God says, do not intermarry, it's not like the innocent romantic story, like if Hollywood portrayed this, of um, the foreign woman and the native man um, falling in love and then the angry father saying, I forbid this marriage, don't you dare marry. We marry within our household. It's nothing like that at all. It's actually, the reality of it is, it is someone leading someone else away from the path of God to the path of destruction, life and death. That's really what it is. And that's why God didn't want that to happen. And for us, these cultural idols that we have in the city of Canberra around us, they are deceptively destructive. They lead us away from obedience toward God. Devotion is a zero sum, right? Like you have a certain amount of devotion and if you give devotion to something else, then it has to be taken away from something. So if you give more devotion to something else, then your devotion will have to be taken away from God. And so the warning for us, as we see these cultural idols in our midst, which for us, as I spoke about previously, they're not like this big golden calf outside there. They are um, often seen in how much devotion we give to TV series or even in our minds, to celebrities, sports, whatever it may be, 
the question is, is it drawing your devotion away from God? And so the question that we should ask always, which is something that we put in our, our value, um, one of our values as a church is, does this hinder or promote genuine devotion? And so that's the question that we should ask about really anything we do. Does this hinder or promote genuine devotion? And I think there'll be one of three answers. Either it does. Like if you're so engrossed in this new TV series that you're actually spending hours and hours a day and then you're so exhausted by it that you don't spend time reading your Bible, you don't come to a prayer meeting, then I think it's obvious, well, that is clearly hindering your devotion to God. It's actually taking away from it. Even work can become, if you're so invested in work, so concerned with status, it can then hinder your devotion. Or it could be a neutral thing. It's neither good nor bad. It's kind of a gray area. Or there are things that actually promote genuine devotion. But the point is, if we are uncritically going about all of these things, not asking the question, then it is a slippery slope. And that was kind of the issue with the Israelites in Deuteronomy. They were uncritically accepting these new shiny objects, these new cultural idols without asking, well, hang on, is this going to help me be faithful to the Lord? And so without asking the question, it's very easy for something to become an idol. An idol really for us is anything we love more than God. There are good things in this world that we have by God's common grace, but if we love them more than God, it becomes an idol. The second warning here is the disease of discontentment. The Israelites slipped again and again into discontentment. They grumbled about their circumstances. They complained and rebelled against the Lord. It was only like a few weeks after they were brought out of Egypt and they started to say, man, Egypt is better than this. At least we had food back there. This is terrible. Just take us back to slavery. And this is one of the most dangerous diseases to the Christian life. Discontentment with our physical surroundings. And I am most definitely not immune to this. And I, I literally, I just had this point while I was writing this sermon this week. And I, I literally had the title, Disease of Discontentment, in front of me. And my mind was just um, concerned with, some of you would know I've shared like our new house. And I was wanting to look up realestate.com to see if there was any other options. And I just had this moment where like it was, God made it very clear and I just saw discontentment. And it was just quite piercing into my heart. And I realized that I had allowed a slight laziness in my own pursuit of Christ to actually allow discontentment to come in. And so this is the point, a a spirituality of complacency, a spirituality of complacency will lead to discontentment with our physical surroundings. Whereas a spirituality of holy discontentment, a good kind of discontentment, the kind of discontentment that says, I don't want to stay complacent. I want to pursue the Lord. I want to have intimacy. I want to actually grow in my yearning. That kind of holy discontentment leads to contentment with your physical surroundings. 
A spirituality of complacency will lead to a life of discontentment. And if you're not discontent, yet you are complacent, it's probably because you've gone past that path of discontentment and you're now just into apathy, where you just don't care anymore. And that's the end result of that. Whereas we must have a holy discontentment about our spiritual life, the kind of holy discontentment that the psalmist had when he said, O Lord, you are my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have searched for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. That's the kind of holy discontentment that we want. Whereas sometimes we are praying, oh Lord, you are my God, my soul thirsts for another vacation, my flesh longs for a new job, give it to me, Lord. And that's the wrong way to go about it. Beware of the disease of discontentment, unless it is directed toward our pursuit of Christ. So those are our two warnings. Now the two tips to understanding Deuteronomy. And this is to do with God's law. The Hebrew word for, for um, law is often Torah. There's a few other words, but you've probably heard Torah before because Torah refers also to the first five books of the Bible, but it basically means law. And we in our day and age have a very penal understanding of law, like we understand it as punishment or restrictive. And so when we hear God's law, it sometimes grates against us. And so we try to write it off as something we don't have to follow anymore. And there are, of course, more complexities to this, which we will unpack, like the sacrificial laws being fulfilled in Christ. So we're not butchering lambs anymore. Praise God for that. But the reason that we don't write God's law off is because... Uh, Torah, law, from a Hebrew understanding, is God's instruction to his people whom he has already redeemed. So Torah, actually a better translation of Torah is instruction. That's, that's what it means in its context is instruction. God's instruction for his people whom he has redeemed. Torah is his gracious gift of guidance for peace in this new land that he is bringing the people into. And so as we approach Deuteronomy, we should see these laws not specifically as punishment, but rather as God's gracious gift to his people to live in the way which he desires, which in turn is the best possible way for us to live. And to do this well, we need to reshape our understanding of freedom. We've kind of spoken about this Previously, we tend to place law and freedom as mutually exclusive. But the reality is we are free to drive on our roads because there are laws governing the speed at which people are to drive. So we're free to drive safely because there are laws. No one who is in their right mind uh, goes and sees a, a 30 kilometer an hour sign on a hairpin turn and says, you restrictive, oppressive law, I am free to do what I want. So I'm gonna take this at 120 and they will crash to their death. And that is why we have laws. It's actually freeing for us in the sense that we are most free, all 
humanity together, when there are these laws governing us. So we have to see obedience to God's instructions as the most freeing thing we could do. I um, won't give the example now, but for those who were here at our Easter service, I gave the Thomas the Tank Engine analogy, and you can ask me about that later, but actually the most freeing thing we could do is living in the way we were created to. Because the alternative is to be enslaved by unbound desire. That's really the alternative, and that's where our culture is going. That's what autonomy is, is this idea of self-law. We just want to govern ourselves, but actually... Ironically, you become enslaved to just unbound desire because in this fallen world, those desires are placed in things that will never satisfy you. They just give you an infinite appetite for more. And so if we reshape our understanding of freedom so that it is not incompatible with God's law, then we see the connection between the freedom God offers in his gracious instruction and our obedience when we walk in it. Now, that's the first aspect, the first tip to understanding Torah. But the second aspect and tip to understanding Torah is understanding the condemnation that results in it. So God's law is his grace toward his covenant people. But the reality is because of the sickness of our hearts, we can't actually live in light of God's gracious Law And so this law actually brings condemnation upon us because we can't fully live by it. We know that the result of a fallen world is not just that we sin, but that we are sinners. It's a change in our nature. We don't just sin. We're actually sinners. We're by nature enemies of God, Paul says. We by nature rebel. So there are two aspects to this law that we should see both the covenantal grace as well as the condemnation. So the law is good. Paul says the law is holy, just and good. The problem is with us. The problem is with our hearts. And Paul details this in Romans 8, where he says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the cross of Christ means that the condemnation aspect of the law has been satisfied. So back to Romans 8, what the law could not do in that it was weakened in the flesh, the flesh being this this age, both the flesh as our natural desires, but the flesh as this age or realm that we live in, bound under the law, being dead in sin. That's the flesh, right? And so the law was weakened in the flesh because in that place, the law could not promote righteousness in us. It only promoted more rebellion. So our hearts were so sick that we couldn't actually live in light of this covenantal obedience, just Read through the Old Testament. Look at the pattern of sin that continued to creep into the people of God. That's symbolic of every single person. We are in sin. And so the law could not do it. But what the law could not do, being weakened in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the law couldn't do it, but God sent his son Jesus, to enter into this age of the flesh, this realm of the flesh, to actually be born 
as a baby. I mean, just think about that. Like Jesus was the size of Eliora at some stage, just dependent upon his parents. Such was God's love for humanity that he entered into the depths of humanity. Born as a baby, Jesus lived as a growing boy and as a man and never sinned, not once. He lived a life of faithful obedience to God's covenantal law. He lived in perfect obedience. And so he therefore became able to take upon himself the condemnation which the law brought upon us in the flesh, Christ was able to take it upon himself because he did not sin. If Christ sinned even once, he would be deserving of punishment and therefore not able to take anything upon himself because he's just right back where we are, enslaved to sin, under condemnation. But Jesus lived the life of faithful obedience to this law so that he is able to take the condemnation upon himself. And that's where it says God condemned sin in the flesh. In Christ, he condemned sin so that we would be set free. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. The reality is that we are united to one of two people. We're either united to Adam, who was the first man to sin, and sin therefore came down through the line of Adam. And so that's where we are not just, we don't just sin, we are sinners. We're either united to Adam in this age of the flesh, in this realm of the flesh, or by trusting in Christ, we are brought out of that and raised to life in Jesus. And we are united to him where there is no condemnation. There is freedom. And we are actually by the grace of God able to live in obedience to this covenantal law. That's what Paul says in Titus, the grace of God has appeared to us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to live in faithful obedience. So we need to see both aspects of the Torah. We need to understand that it is God's gracious instruction. But it is also condemnation because of the sickness of our hearts. But for those in Christ, we are free from that condemnation. And that is something that we must remind ourselves of because that's what God says to the people in Deuteronomy. Remember, I am the God who freed you from the slavery of Egypt. And Egypt is symbolic of sin, oppression, slavery. And we in Christ are set free from that to live in faithfulness to this great saving God. And finally, the exhortation that we have, which is in our passage in Deuteronomy 30, which we read out. So this is the summary. We're actually kind of starting our series from the beginning of Deuteronomy, where Moses gives this uh, summary. He's just detailed all of the covenantal laws. He's about to die. He knows he's not going to enter the promised land. Joshua is about to take over as the leader of Israel and bring them in. And Moses says, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. So he's saying this, this, like how sinners are made right with God is not a complex thing. It's by faith in Christ. It's not far off. This is not something we intellectually assent to. 
because God has come down to us. So he says, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And then he says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. True life is on offer here from God. And so the people are given a decision and we have that same decision. Are we going to choose life or death? And the reality is, like, for those who have trusted in Christ, yes, you've chosen life. But I think part of the point of this is that it is a decision we take again and again in the sense of daily taking up our cross and following Jesus. That is the choice of life. Taking up our cross and following Christ is the call to obedience, which Moses and God through Moses was calling the people of Israel to in this very passage. So the setting of life before the people of Israel, it was both the call to obedience, but it was also the foreshadowing a thousand years before. It was the foreshadowing of where this life would ultimately come from. So in the Gospel of John, John tells us this immediately. He just jumps into his gospel account and says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse four, he's talking about Jesus. He says, in him was life. In Christ is life. This choice of life was ultimately always going to come through the redemptive work of Christ. That was what was given to the Israelites, foreshadowing this day when Christ would bring life. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14, it says, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And the apostle John clearly taking from Deuteronomy, he was a good Hebrew who would have known his Torah. We see him put another layer on this in his account where in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is basically, in a simplistic way, God's desire to live with his people. That's the desire of God. This God who created everything, his main desire is to then live with his people, where we will worship him in all of his majesty. That's what John is saying here. The word became flesh and the word is tabernacled among us. And the tabernacle was the place of God's presence. And so this was showing God's desire is to live with his people because in him is life. In him is the fullness of life. This life that Jesus came to give, this life abundantly. God's desire is for communion with his people. And this life that God sets before us is so radically close to us. We have it because Jesus is the word become flesh. And he has dwelt among us in bodily form so that we might have him as the true word. He is our life. Everything outside of Christ is death and decay, regardless of how it looks in this society. Everything outside of Christ is death and decay, but in Christ is life. And we have to see that actually life is necessarily tied to obedience to God's word. That's why Jesus says, all those who love me will obey my commands. It's almost just him saying, of course they will. Because how could you truly love someone and not walk in obedience to them? That would show that you don't love them. 
And so this is the call that we have today. And I hope what we will see through Deuteronomy is that our call to obedience is synonymous with our call to choose life every day. But we do this because of what God has already done in Christ. He has freed us, freed us from sin, brought us out of slavery, and now says now, beloved children, live this way because it's good for you. It's good for you to be in obedience. 